Lionel Messi, Tiger Woods, LeBron James, Wayne Gretzky, Babe Ruth, Tom Brady. Sports? They're the greatest. Anybody else want to take a stab at that? What? Millionaires. Millionaires. <laughs> yeah. Don't, they're all sinners. <laughs> so it's, well, not only are they they're the greatest, they are goats. You familiar with that term? Goat. Greatest of all time. They are not just great, they are the best of the best. Of course, when you say that, you kind of have to uh, qualify that a little bit, don't you, with, with two adverbs. One, first of all, arguably, because of course not everybody has the same opinion. It wasn't that long ago everybody thought Michael Jordan was the goat. Now it's kind of LeBron James. Huh? And the second thing is temporarily, because it only takes time before somebody else comes along and overtakes the greatest of all time, right? As human beings, I think we are enamored with greatness, aren't we? We, uh, we are driven to achieve it. We exalt it in our heroes. Um, and that's true of individuals, like those guys that I just mentioned. It's true also of teams and organizations and groups who want to be the greatest. It's true also of nations, uh, as we've experienced recently with another acronym, MAGA. We want to make America great again, right? Greatness. It's a, a game of comparisons, you know, being better than others. And in a sense, it's a relative term. What really is it that makes someone great? People who are gifted, who are independent, confident, confident cocky, maybe self-assured. It's something that you have to work at to achieve. It's someone who is a step above whether socially we're talking about, economically, intellectually, or physically. Who do you think are great people? When you hear of the greatest of all time, who comes to mind for you? See, that's the, the discussion that the disciples were having in that Bible reading that we just heard from uh, in Luke chapter 9. Uh, Luke 9, if you have it in your pew Bible, it might be helpful tonight to have a look at that because I'm going to refer back to a couple of things here. Luke 9 is really a, a chapter of transition in Luke's gospel. Up until this point in Jesus' ministry, according to Luke's account of Jesus' life, he and his disciples are uh, up north in Galilee. In chapters 1 through 8 and, and in chapter 9 up until verse 51, we see Jesus doing his miracles and his teaching in, in, in uh, Galilee. And during that time, he's preparing his disciples for what is to come. Uh, last week, Pastor Dave preached about in, in verses 18 through 22, there on page, 
page 1026 in your pew Bibles, page 1026, verses 18 through 22, Jesus talks about, you know, understanding who he is. And he went back through Genesis, or Luke chapter 1 all the way up through chapter 9 here. All of the things Jesus did, the miracles he performed to prove that he is who he said he was, who Peter at that point then confessed him to be. When Jesus asks the disciples, who do you say I am? Peter says, speaking for all the other disciples, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then what follows then is this transfiguration experience beginning in verse 28. The transfiguration where Jesus takes three of his disciples, Peter being one of those disciples, the one who had just made the confession, up on top of a mountain where he is transfigured before them. He is glorified. They can see that they are standing in the presence of God. Moses and Elijah come and talk with Jesus. The voice from heaven says, this is my son whom I love. And there on the mountain, we understand then what the plan of God is in, in verse, uh, in verse uh, 31. They spoke about his departure, which he is about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. That was Jesus' plan, and that's what Pastor Dave would have preached about here tonight uh, in this this section, and I'm just kind of condensing that into what we're going to talk about here. The great glory of God seen up there on the Mount of Transfiguration. <clears throat> uh, then follows the healing of a boy who had an evil spirit. And then tonight, we're told in verse 43, all the people were amazed at the greatness of God. And in words that we just heard then, while everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it and they were afraid to ask him about it. When it came to understanding the cross and all that was involved in that, the betrayal, the rejection, the suffering and death of Jesus there at the cross, those 12 disciples didn't get it. They didn't understand or as it says here, they didn't grasp it. It was hidden from them. Why? Because they were too, th uh, too busy thinking about greatness. The greatness of Jesus, certainly, but then also their own greatness. You can hear them arguing, oh, yeah, sure, Jesus is the greatest, but who's next? Who's the next highest? Knuckleheads, we might, we might think to ourselves. And you can't, you can't help but believe that Peter was right there in the, midst, in the midst of that argument. I mean, he was the one, after all, who walked on water to Jesus, right? He's the one who spoke for all the disciples and said, oh, you're the Christ. He was one of the three who was up there on the top of the mountain viewing Jesus in all of his glory. Yeah, in his mind, Jesus was going to be great, and that would make him great. He would be the goat disciple. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him and said, 
Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. Talk about a put down. The need for this lecture shouldn't have come as a surprise, though, to the disciples. Jesus had been teaching this, this all along up until this point. Kingdom greatness, he would say, doesn't have anything to do with elevating self to positions of dominance and, and superiority. It has rather to do with, with reaching down and serving the weakest among us, those who are the least, the most vulnerable, the needy, those who are dependent, those in the lowest place of societal hierarchy and privilege. Martin Luther was talking about this sort of thing once when he, he said, made the comment that even a mother who changes diapers and nurses her child does a greater work than all the monks and nuns combined, who back in his day, monks and nuns did the greatest work of all. Yes, Jesus would be the one who would associate with tax collectors, with, with public sinners, outcast lepers who cried for mercy, Samaritans, despised Samaritans who were, who were good, and humiliated prodigals who repent and return. Little children who can do nothing to promote advancement or our own credentials in the name of greatness. Humble yourselves, Jesus says, humble yourself and see what life is like from their perspective. Walk a mile in their shoes. Walk a lifetime in their shoes. Now that kind of empathy simply was beyond those disciples at this point. They didn't get it. And this wouldn't be the last time that they would have this, this argument, by the way. Later on, in the upper room on Monday, Thursday, just hours before Jesus would demonstrate what true servanthood is, right after sharing the Lord's Supper, we're told, a dispute broke out again among the disciples as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Knuckleheads. What's wrong with these guys? They still didn't understand. Only this time Jesus would teach them by saying, the greatest among you should be like the youngest. You see, not only welcome a child, be a child. And the one who rules like the one who serves. I am among you as one who serves. The cross would be the testimony of that ultimate service, that, that servant leadership. Like so much else in the kingdom of God, you see, Jesus flips this whole idea of greatness right on its head. Go figure. Do you aspire to be great? You know, to a degree, I think we all do. Certainly nobody strives to be the worst or the least. But neither do we want to be, you know, ordinary. We don't want to be just good enough, average, common. As Jesus' 21st century disciples, we too, I think, want to be part of something great. 
And for that, we need a, a strong, in control, Savior God. One who's on our side. One who can reward us and provide for our future and who, who can then frustrate and destroy every enemy that gets in the way. You know, we don't like humiliation and weakness. We don't like it in our professional athletes or in our government leaders. Least of all, in our, in our Savior God. We'd rather see Jesus in all of his glory standing up there on the top of the Mount of Transfiguration than on his knees washing feet or praying on his knees with tears in Gethsemane begging for a way out, shamefully beaten and spit upon, hanging helplessly on a cross. You know, we identify with Jesus because he is not only our savior, but he's our example. He's someone that we want to be like. Someone who can, can make Christianity great again. Make God's kingdom come. Who wants to suffer like he did and be humiliated? You know, to be a loser. To be in the declining minority in, in the secular state in which we live. To have our Christian truths and values ridiculed in academic classrooms. To have our religious liberties taken away. Our Christian faith socially marginalized. Not only that, but who wants the same old, ordinary, routine life of a Christian with plain old Sunday school and Bible class and a preacher that we can see week after week? That's just church. What's so great about that? Knuckleheads. Make no mistake, when it comes to God's plan of world salvation, Jesus is the goat. And he is so because he, as we heard in our reading from Philippians, willingly left the glory of heaven and disguised himself in undercover flesh and blood. Being found in fashion as a man, he appeared to be anything but great. And he further humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. What makes Jesus great, though, is that he in his own words, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, for us. One of our Lenten hymns asks it this way. Was it for crimes that I had done that he groaned upon the tree? And the hymn's answer shocks us. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. For us. For us, Jesus endured Calvary's mournful mountain, and for us he rose victorious from the grave. Forty days later, from the Mount of Ascension, he returned to the glory of heaven exalted to the greatest seat at God's right hand, where he now advocates 
for us. But he didn't just leave us and, and go away. As he promises, he is with us always as we take up our crosses and continue down the ordinary and often fearful journey of life. With us in flesh and blood of those who are the least of Jesus' brothers among us. You know, a child or the hungry, the sick, those in prison, those whose needs we provide as though we were providing to Jesus himself. And it's interesting in that judgment scene from which those words are taken in Matthew 25 where Jesus at the, the last day separates the, those who, who fed him and, and uh, visited him and so forth and those who didn't. And he says to those on his right, to the sheep, come inherit the kingdom prepared for you. And to the left, who are they? The goats. <laughs> the goats who did not do those things for him. Till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross. And there he is with us always, as he promised, to the end of the age. For us, with us. For and with. Two prepositions that really tell us all we need to know about God's great plan of salvation. All along, this was God's plan. This is what Jesus came to do. And this is why, for time and eternity, Jesus is the goat. He is the greatest. When you think of great people in the Bible, the heroes of the Bible, who comes to mind for you? Any number of people, right? Yes, Abraham and Moses, King David. How about John the Baptist? You know, the, the forerunner of the Christ, the first one to point to Jesus and say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus says, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. There's hope for us, isn't there? Or how about St. Paul? The guy who wrote more books of the Bible than anybody else. The great missionary to the Gentiles. St. Paul who says... Once I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, the worst of sinners, chief of sinners, though I be. And for that reason, I was shown mercy. Hope for us, isn't there? Or how about St. Peter? You know, the one of the twelve who maybe was the greatest. He would become the first pope after all, right? What about him? And Jesus, on the night after he uh, lectured the disciples about greatness, says, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. But in a few hours, it did fail, didn't it? He denied knowing Jesus, and yet in tears repented and was reinstated and was of great service to the Lord. There's hope for us too yet, isn't there? Do you want to be great? 
then have this mind in you. To be a child, needy, dependent, trusting completely in the mercy of God. And then, welcome a child. Love those who are beneath you in Jesus' name. For of all the great things in this life, at the end of days, these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Amen to that.